0: Okay, shall I kick things off, Geoff?
1: Yep, we're live on YouTube. So everybody just be aware that we are being recorded now, please.
0: Okay, um, well, welcome everybody um, to this year's Sir Derek Burley Memorial Lecture. Um, And I'm delighted to say that our Derek Burley Memorial Lecture is gonna be given by Dr Prashant Kadambi from the University of Leicester. Um, so just for those of you who don't know, I'm Raph Nicholson, um, I'm the current Chair of the BSSH and I'm also Senior Lecturer in Sport and Sustainability at Bournemouth University so I'll be handing over to Jeff Levitt in a minute to formally introduce the lecture um, but I've just got a quick announcement to make first which relates to this year's Lord Aberdeer Literary Prize. Now the Lord Aberdeer Literary Prize is awarded each year by the British Society of Sports History for the best book on any aspect of Of the history of sport in Britain or for the best book on any aspect of sports history written by a British author and this year's panel of judges for the Aberdare prize consists of the chair Richard Boddy, Connor Curran and Imogen Gibbon Um, so I have been um, tasked with letting you know um, about the judges report which I'm going to read out now and then announcing the winner So this is the judge's report. Um, They say that in both 2018 and 2019, there had been 13 books submitted. And this year in 2020, they had 22 books entered, which was a substantial increase. Over half of the submissions concentrated on football and cricket. Other topics included cycling, boxing, physical education, swimming, horse racing, tennis and the sports shoe, indicative of greater diversity of subject matter amongst the entries this year. Circumstances for the panel were a bit different this year due to COVID-19, but they were able to maintain regular contact and discussions regarding each book. And as in previous years, they agreed on a shortlist. Um, So the shortlist consisted of Tony Collins, How Football Began, A Global History of How the World's Footballing Codes Were Born by Routledge. Dave Day and Margaret Roberts, Swimming Communities in Victorian England, published by Paul Grave Macmillan. Roy Hay, Aboriginal People and Australian Football in the 19th Century, They Did Not Come from Nowhere, published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing. Gary James, The Emergence of Football and Cultures in Manchester, 1840-1919, to 1919. published by Manchester University Press. Prashank Nambi, Cricket Country, An Indian Odyssey in the Age of Empire, published by Oxford University Press. Raph Nicholson, Ladies and Lords, A History of Women's Cricket in Britain, published by Peter Lang. And Malcolm Tozer, Edward Thring's Theory, Practice and Legacy, Physical Education in Britain since 1800, published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing. So drum roll please, the winner of the 2020 Lord Aberdare Literary Prize is Prashant Kidambi for Cricket Country, An Indian Odyssey in the Age of Empire. So huge congratulations to Prashant, I'm just going to read out um, the judge's comments on your book. They said the book utilises sport as a lens through which to view the diverse nature of Indian society and readership and of Indian society and class. In particular, the monograph is a model of historical writing and has already garnered a wide readership from the academic to the general reader. It was also shortlisted for the prestigious Wolfson Prize. And the author's response to the following question, what would you want readers to take away from your book? He replied, I would like readers to be able to read Cricket Country as a work of history that uses sport to explore themes that go beyond the confines of sport. This is a tale about modern India and its imperial legacy with cricket as the framing device. The Aberdeer panel would certainly endorse the author's statement and recognition by the Wolfson Award of the academic potential of sports history is most welcome. Um, now, we had actually invited Prashant to be our Derek Burley keynote speaker um, before we were aware that he was going to be the winner of our Aberdare prize for this year. Um, but we just felt that now would be an appropriate time to announce him as the winner just ahead of his keynote. So congratulations again to Prashant. And I'm now going to hand over to Jeff to introduce the keynote and then to chair the remaining of the session.
1: Okay. Thanks, Raf. You can hear me, yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> um, yes, I'm Geoffrey Levitt. I'm the Secretary of the British Society of Sports History and it's a great pleasure to introduce um, the 2020 conference keynote speaker Prashant Kadambi, who in the light of the restrictions placed on conferences by the current pandemic, has kindly agreed to deliver his lecture via Zoom and live on the BSSH's YouTube channel. Before I introduce Prashant, just a few housekeeping rules. Um, please remain on mute throughout the meeting. Um, you can ask questions by using the chat bar and I will keep an eye on, on the questions and I will ask as many of those questions as I can um, at the end of the session to Prashant, given the time remaining when he's finished. Um, remember that the event is being recorded and it's being broadcast on YouTube as we speak. And if you want to tweet about um, this event, please use the conference hashtag, which is hashtag BSSH2020. So without further ado, I'll introduce Prashant. Uh, Prashant is Associate Professor in Colonial Urban History at the University of Leicester, where he's based in the Centre for Urban Studies. He began his academic journey in India at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi before coming to the UK to finish his doctorate at Oxford University. In 2007, he published The Making of an Indian Metropolis, Colonial Governance and Public Culture in Bombay and since then has developed into a leading scholar on the history of colonial era India, and of Bombay in particular. And it's that interest in colonial history, and more specifically the birth of Anglo-Indian cricket in the 19th century, that brings Prashant to our conference. From its beginnings as a short article on the first all India tour to England, which was published in Wisden in 2011, Prashant developed his research into sports history resulting in his latest book, Cricket Country, An Indian Odyssey in the Age of Empire, which Raph introduced to us, and I have a copy here. It really is a, a beautiful book uh, published last year. Cricket Country is already recognised as a classic work of sports history. In my own review for our journal, Sporting History, I described it as a model for how historians of sports can present a complex analysis of their subject to both a scholarly and a lay audience. I would also say that it's the most important work on Indian cricket history in a generation, indeed, since Ramachandra Guha's uh, book, um, Foreign Field. The book tells the story of the 1911 tour, but it is also much, much more than that. It places the tour in the context of the social history of India from the end of the 19th century through to independence, shading in how the playing and organization of cricket became a means of negotiating and asserting class gender, ethnic, and political identities for both the coloniser and the colonised. Which is not to say that it's a work of dry analysis. The characters who made up the 1911 touring party are brought to life in all, th- all their diversity, from the aristocratic Bupinder Singh, Maharaja of Patiala, to the gloriously talented Dalit cricketer, Palawankar Balu, who emerges as a star, not just of the tour, but of Prashant's book itself. So it was with all justification that cricket country was shortlisted for the prestigious 2019 Wolfson Prize, the first work of sports history to have been honoured in this way. And I'm sure that Sir Derek Burley would be proud that it was a work of cricket history that broke this glass ceiling for our discipline. So it's with great pleasure that I asked Prashant to deliver the 2020 Sir Derek Burley Memorial Lecture.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Jeff, for that very uh, generous introduction. Um, I also want to thank uh, the organizers of the conference for inviting me to give uh, this lecture. It's a great honor indeed uh, to be asked to deliver a lecture in memory of Sir Derek uh, Burley, whose books on uh, sport were major contributions uh, to the field. Two of uh, Sir Derek's uh, books made uh, a deep impact on me. Uh, the first is Magisterial Social History of English Cricket, which traced uh, the game's evolution from its beginnings to modern times. It was an impressive survey of the game's relationship to its changing historical context, the context in which it was played, administered, and watched. And although the study was based on uh, deep research, it was written in a manner that was accessible to a A general, uh, a wider audience. Uh, Indeed, the book was awarded the uh, William Hill Prize in 1999. I think one can safely say that it is an agreeable fantasy for any sports historian, uh, you know, to write a book based on deep scholarly research uh, that is accessible to a wide public and goes on to win the William Hill. Uh, And perhaps somewhere uh, in reading that book, uh, I was perhaps unconsciously influenced by this need to. uh, to write uh, about sport uh, based on academic research, but keeping in mind the general audience. But truth be told, um, I found Sir Derek's other book, The Willow Wand, uh, more relevant for my own uh, research. For in this book, he took on some of cricket's uh, hoary myths and subjected them to uh, serious critical scrutiny. This book is very different in style uh, from the social history of English cricket. Uh, and it showed cricket to be not merely a sport, but an exercise in um, national and imperial myth-making, uh, shaped by deeply conservative ideologies. Indeed, not until Mike Marcus's Anyone But England have we had a book that laid bare the yawning chasm between cricket's nostalgia-soaked uh, rhetoric and uh, the prosaic realities that underpinned um, these uh, myths. So it's, therefore, a particular pleasure and privilege to be asked to deliver this year's um, Derek Burley lecture. And it's very appropriate, too, that uh, that this lecture is organized by the British Society of Sports History, the Premier Scholarly uh, Association for the promotion of sports history in this country. Um, So in my talk today, I want to explore a theme that pervades the writing of sports history, but that is seldom the subject of overt reflection. I'm referring here to the idea of the boundary in sports history. I want today to reflect on the place of the boundary in structuring our understanding of sport and the histories we write about, the histories that we write about it. And I want to argue that the category of the boundary uh, is not merely a descriptor or a metaphor It is in fact constitutive of sports history. It structures how we imagine the field of sports history, and it is a concept that makes the endeavor of sports history possible. Now, much of this uh, might seem obvious, but it is obvious in a way that makes us overlook it. And rather like Edgar Allan Poe's uh, following letter, this is a topic that has lain hidden in plain sight. And so I crave your indulgence in addressing it today. I want to do three things today. I want to focus on three themes, in other words. First, I want to focus on how the history of sport is premised on the notion that to truly understand the substantive and symbolic significance of sport, we need to look beyond the boundary, as it were arguably this is the starting point for all in sports history the idea that what is truly important about sport uh, lies not within the boundary but in the world outside of it which structures it and which gives it meaning from its inception the field of sports history has has sought to show how what goes on within the boundary is a product of forces and processes that lie outside of it and in this respect at least sports history does not Uh, inhabit a universe that is sealed off from the wider discipline of history. On the contrary, I will argue, sports history has mirrored the changing intellectual currents and paradigm shifts within history over the past six decades. Second, I I seek to explore one crucial problem generated by this focus on what goes on outside the boundary. And that is, the puzzling neglect within academic sports history of what actually happens on the field of play. I'm bracketing off popular sports writing, which focus on uh, sporting action. Uh, it's, it's the puzzling neglect within academic sports history of what actually happens on the field of play, that is my concern here. It is one of the curiosities of academic writing on sport that it has a profound ambivalence about sporting action itself. There is a tendency within the historiography to turn away from sporting action or gloss over it and so i want to dwell on this problem and reflect on one intriguing approach that suggests how we might set about rethinking it third i want to explore how the notion of the boundary in writing about sport has not merely a spatial but a temporal dimension in other words Although the concept of the boundary pushes us in the direction of space, we need to bring in the question of time. And here, I want to reflect on how, as sports historians, we demarcate and narrate the history of sporting events. Here, the boundaries we set are not spatial, but temporal. And they revolve around the narrative strategies we deploy in identifying the historical temporality of an event. And I would suggest that a consideration of the temporalities of sporting events raise methodological and analytical issues that are salient to the writing of history more generally. So sports history has something to offer to the wider field of history when it comes to thinking about time and temporality, especially in relation to events. Now, I should point out that these three problematics that I've identified stem from my own experience of writing about sport and in particular, the history of a singular sporting event. Uh, My recent book, Cricket Country, which Jeff just mentioned, uh, tells the story of the first all India cricket tour of Great Britain and Ireland in the summer of 1911. This was at one level, a sporting event, a tour of the kind that had become increasingly common uh, in the Edwardian high noon of empire. But in writing about this historical, uh, but in writing about this event as a historical event, I had to confront many of the issues that I've just outlined. The need to set sport in its proper historical context beyond the boundary. The conundrum of how to write about sporting action inside the boundary and finally how to construct and communicate the historical temporality of a sporting event. So I'll be drawing on some of the issues generated by my own research and writing in reflecting on themes that I hope will be of more general concern to the field of sports history. So let me then crack on and get to the first part of my talk, which I've called, as you might have guessed, Beyond the Boundary. So my first theme then is that the idea that sports history is defined uh, by the attention it To what happens beyond the boundary. One only has to utter this phrase, and it brings to mind the book that made it a commonplace. I refer, refer, of course, to C. L. R. James and his compelling classic. James's riff on Kipling may in fact serve as a motto for sports history in general, if disciplines can be said to have mottos. What do they know of cricket who only cricket know must be one of the most frequently cited epigraphs in the historiography of sport. And speaking personally, I had to do all I could to restrain myself from using it myself. So what I did cunningly was go to James and pick up another quote which is there in the epigraph to my uh, book. But but we all know that feeling, the temptation to cite James as soon as one looks at uh, or one begins to work on sports history. For what James showed with Beyond the Boundary was how sport acquires its significance from the wider historical context within which it is embedded. He explored the story of Caribbean cricket by placing it squarely within the wider social formation of this formerly colonized region. It is not a conventional history of sport. In fact, one of the noteworthy features of the book is that it is really told as a series of vignettes, of of people, of places, of events. In the process, James showed how, in the Caribbean, life beyond the boundary gave meaning to the action that took place within it. It is a book that allows us to see the role of culture and ideology in the making of a sport and its transformation over time. It is simultaneously history, autobiography, cultural analysis and political activism. Now, interestingly, while James's book is often touted as one of the great works on sport. I believe it stands at an awkward angle to the discipline of sports history. James's book was not an academic treatise, nor was it anchored in any clearly defined discipline. The book, to my mind, is an outlier. It doesn't map on easily to the trajectories of sports history as a discipline, certainly as it evolved in Britain. Uh, And a caveat here, much of what I say in this part of my talk uh, will focus largely uh, on the British context of sports history, and that's a choice dictated by the nature of this occasion. Those trajectories, in fact, mirrored more closely the wider trends in the writing of history itself. So, the tra- I'm talking here of the trajectories of sports history in Britain. The emergence of sports history as a readily identifiable and discrete area of scholarship really began in the decade after James published his book. And I don't think it actually had that much to do with James's book at all. And in many ways, the evolution of sports history in Britain mirrors wider trends in the discipline of professional history since the 1960s. The history of sport in this country emerged as part of the broader rise of social history as the dominant paradigm of history writing. This was because the pioneers in the field were essentially professional historians based in university departments who chose to take up the study of sport as part of an investigation of broader historical processes. I will bracket off for the moment uh, a tradition that is of amateur sports history um, for the moment. In Britain, we can see the impact of this kind of social history that was produced, uh, the social history of sport that was produced in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, As Richard Holt has pointed out, unlike in the European context where sports history tended to focus on physical education in its widest sense, British, British sports history tended to focus largely on competitive games and tended to evaluate the place of sport in British society through the prism of industrialization and class relations. There were also works that explored processes of urbanization um, and the making of modern sport. This was a tradition that also flourished across the Atlantic, incidentally, where historians explored the role of this, uh, role of sport in the urban context as an activity that was closely bound up with city making, for example. The social history of sport that emerged in Britain, and this is also true of the United States, I think, in the 1970s, was very much a representative part of the, wide, of the wider social history tradition in its choice of teams and problems. The focus was on the evolution of individual competitive sports, cricket, football, baseball, etc., often set within an urban, regional or national framework. The focus was initially on the working classes, but gradually widened to incorporate a study of middle-class involvement in sport, especially the amateur tradition in Britain. These works also tended to concentrate on the modern period, with very little work that actually explored the period before 1750. As with social history more generally, the dominant interpretative framework was Marxism. But we can also see the influence of Bavarian approaches, especially in studies that sought to Uh, look at the institutionalization of sport and its growing bureaucratization. It is worth noting, of course, that there was also another parallel tradition in the study of sport that exceeded the disciplinary boundaries of sports history. This was a historically informed sociology that came at sport from a very different uh, theoretical and analytical perspective than the work being produced within the dominant social history tradition. This historically informed sociology sought to uncover long term changes in social organization, uh, long term changes in human behavior, rather, over generations, and sought to relate these to macro level changes in social organization and state formation. Um, And this particular tradition, uh, it can be readily identified with, uh, say, Norbert Elias, uh, who was incidentally based here uh, uh, for a long time at Leicester, whose ideas about the civilizing process accorded an important place to sport. Uh, of course, you could say that there was a longer tradition that predated Elias when we talk of Johann Huizinga, for example, and Homo Ludens, you know, written in the 1930s, which kind of accords sport an important place within uh, culture more generally. Elias's successors uh, uh, here at Leicester, notably Eric Dunning, was based in sociology departments and deployed his framework in looking at the evolution of sport in Europe more generally. By the late 1980s and early 1990s, the dominant frames of sports history in Britain began to mirror the shift from social history to cultural history. The older problematics were not entirely displaced. Class and nation, for example, remained key themes. but there emerged a new interest in questions of gender and race. And there was a broadening of the analytical focus to take in the wider world of the British Empire. Yet in some respects, sports history did not really push on to evaluate more deeply the implications of its findings for more general understandings of the workings of modern power. And here, perhaps, the split that Richard Holt identified between the British tradition of studying competitive games and the continental tradition focusing more broadly on physical culture may have played a part. For example, it's noteworthy that the Foucauldian notion of biopowers had fewer takers in Britain than one might have assumed given the salience of that concept for sports studies and sports history. Nonetheless, the interest in gender and race proved to be immensely productive for sports historians in Britain. An exploration of these themes allowed sports historians to speak, uh, to address uh, questions pertaining to the construction of masculinity, the exclusion of women and the codes that governed Uh, modern sports. The focus on empire too allowed sports history to be brought into discussions of the imperial experience and the place of sport within it. Though it's noteworthy that the Oxford history of the British empire has accorded very little place to sport, there isn't even a single volume on this um, uh, um, significantly enough. Sport's role in the fashioning of imperial identities, as well as the place of sport as a site of cultural hegemony and subaltern resistance, were also themes that attracted attention uh, from the late 1980s onwards. Now, one uh, area where uh, sports history, the trajectories of sports history and the historical discipline more generally diverge is in the influence of the linguistic turn, uh, which of course became manifest in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. Now that seems to have had much less of an impact on sports history than than it did on the wider field of history uh, more generally. And finally, in recent years, sports history has once again mirrored the shifts within wider, within historical writing, uh, especially with the turn to global history. Sports historians have been quick to highlight the centrality of transnational and global processes in the making of modern sport. They've begun to explore the ways in which sport also reflected the workings of an increasingly mobile, interconnected and capitalist world system so to summarize this part of my talk when it comes to studying what goes on beyond the boundary which i argue has been a constitutive feature of sports history we see that sports history even it has even as it has carved out uh, uh, carved itself out as a discrete object of inquiry which defines it has mirrored shifts within history writing more generally so even as sports history sort of identifies a topic that is its own and that marks it off as different from other areas of the historical profession, the trajectories themselves that sports history has undergone mirror these wider shifts within history writing. And I suppose, in explaining that, one would have to look at the fact that sports history in Britain has tended to be carried out for the most part within university academic departments. And those who came to study the history of sport did so in relation to broader historical processes. On the other hand, as some have noted, the history of sport in Britain has also tended to be construed more narrowly than on the continent, for instance, where sport has been understood in its larger sense of physical education, rather than simply in its sense of competitive team games. And this is a point that Richard Holt made many years ago, and I think it's something that's worth reflecting on as we look back on the history of sports history. itself. Okay, um, let me now turn to the second part of my talk which I've called taking the field. Um, And I want here to turn from a consideration of sports history as constituted by its focus on what goes on beyond the boundary to its obverse, sporting action within the boundary. Now, few would disagree that the reason sport, whether we think of competitive games or physical education more generally, is primarily attractive and appealing because of what happens on the field of play. Our earliest memories uh, of and attachment to sport is because of what goes on within the boundary. As spectators, we are drawn to sport because of the performance of sportsmen and the thrill of a physical contest. At the highest levels of international sport, it is the attributes and skill of the most highly trained athletes that captivates us. And at more ordinary levels too, we take part in sport because of its kinesthetic pleasures, the sweet sound of the baton, ball in cricket the pleasure of a fine ball in tennis a bit of magic on the football ground that is why we pursue sport and why it gives us joy the best sports is the best sports writing to is all about capturing the flavor of sport as it unfolds within the playing arena it's it's about describing the drama of the contest the personalities of the contestants the atmosphere furnished by the setting the twists and turns of a thrilling sporting event One book on sport that made an impression on me um, when I first read it, that's precisely this. I have in mind Ernest Hemingway's Death in the Afternoon. At the start of the book, Hemingway reflects on the process of describing bullfighting. And this is what Hemingway writes. The only place, and I'm quoting Hemingway here, the only place where you could see life and death, i.e. violent death, now that the wars were over, was in the bullring. And I wanted very much to go to Spain where I could study it. I was trying to learn to write commencing with the simplest things. And one of the simplest things of all and the most fundamental is violent death. It has none of the complications of death by disease or so-called natural death or the death of a friend or someone you have loved or have hated, but is death nevertheless. One of the subjects that a man may write of? I had read many books in which when the author tried to convey it, he only produced a blur. And I decided that this was because either the author had not seen it clearly or at the moment of it he had physically or mentally shut his eyes as one might do if he saw a child that he could not possibly reach or aid about to be struck by a train. So I went to Spain to see bullfights and tried to write about them for myself. I thought they would be simple and barbarous and cruel and that I would not like them but that I would see certain definite action which would give it which would give the feeling of life and death that I was working for. I found a definite action, but the bullfight was so far from simple and I liked it so much that it was much too complicated for my then equipment for writing to deal with. And aside from four very short sketches, I was not able to write anything about it for four years, for five years, and I wish I could have waited for 10. Now, my point in, in, in highlighting this quote is that Hemingway here gets to the heart of something that is at the core of all sport physical action between contestants that is geared towards a resolution of course the bullfight stands at one end of the spectrum of violence and sport but it is a description of sporting action that concerns me here the primary sources that historians deal with are full of descriptions of sporting action yet sports historians themselves have a curiously ambivalent attitude to the description of sporting action and indeed in thinking analytically about sporting action itself. In part, this is because sports history has sought to demarcate its distinctive domain of inquiry as being about the context in which sport takes place. Inevitably, as I have noted in the first part of this lecture, this is about looking at sport in its wider setting beyond the boundary. As a consequence, historians of sport ignore what actually transpires on the field of play, and of course I'm crudely generalizing here. But there are other reasons for why perhaps we avert our gaze from sporting action. There's an implicit but deeply entrenched assumption that no serious analysis of sport can afford to get bogged down in a mass of details about individual matches and so on. Equally, sporting action tends by its very nature to be ephemeral once performed, it leaves no trace other than in memories and descriptions. And its impact on the outside and the world outside the boundary is not readily apparent. So one can see historians' reservations about sporting action. Finally, it is also the case that historians tend, with exceptions to eschew questions of technique internal to a sport. But I believe there are interpretative costs to overlooking the actual content of play. This is because in sport, the play is the key point about the activity. What would we say if an anthropologist describing a community's cultural practices completely overlooked the actual content of that practice? So here's the problem. How should historians approach this question? How can we think about sporting action and write about it in new ways? For a provocative answer to this question, let me invoke an intriguing phrase, phrase in an unlikely place. Everything is given in the least punch, says Jean-Paul Sartre in the Critique of Dialectical Reason. The quote is intriguing because Sartre is not someone whom we automatically associate with sport. However, it is said in his youth, he had been an amateur boxer who took great pride in his uh, boxing skills. But it's not about Sartre's boxing skills that I want to talk about today. More salient for my purpose uh, in this talk is that in Volume 2 of the Critique Sartre spent close to 30 pages discussing boxing. As Benjamin Hutchins has noted, Sartre suggested that philosophers ought to approach any historical conflict in the same way that an informed spectator views boxing. I quote as a single event with two fighters, with two subjective systems of perception and practice, each of whom may be conditioned by their technical training and striving to overcome their socioeconomic alienation. Now, I'm interested in a specific aspect of Sartre's discussion that is relevant to how sports historians might bring sporting action back into their frameworks. It is particularly useful, I think, in prompting us to rethink our approach to sporting individuals and events whose histories are the staple for staple fare of sports history. Um, And at this point, I should point out that my understanding of this issue has been uh, greatly shaped by Jairus Banerjee, the brilliant Marxist scholar who has commented uh, insightfully about this particular theme uh, in the critique. As Banerjee notes, what is fascinating about Sartre's description, discussion of boxing is not the argument uh, that capitalism, capitalism itself is expressed through the sport. In other words, Sartre is not simply making the obvious point that boxing is an economic enterprise whose, to quote, entrep- uh, entrepreneurs recruit their workers among the exploited only to subject them to another kind of exploitation, and that the young boxer sells even that rage which makes him so combative. Or that an explosive blind rage is disciplined and socialized being, by being commodified through the contract he signs with powerful promoters. Instead, Sartre illuminates the dialectics at the heart of boxing. Let me return to that phrase that Sartre used to describe this everything is given in the least punch here is how banaji explains this formulation and how one might interpret it Sartre tells us that each fight is all of boxing implying the relationship between each and all that is already quite distinct from part and whole or instance and concept he goes on to explain that in every fighting boxing is incarnated In other words, totality, the system, society, history, whatever we choose to call it. In this example, the world of boxing and through it the economic enterprise that controls it is only real in the immediacy of events and individuals. And that immediacy in in turn means nothing except as a realization that is a concrete or actual unfolding in time of what he calls totality. Now, Sartre's word for this temporal unfolding is totalization, and by incarnation, Sartre means totalization in its immediacy, this fight here, is totalization incarnate, or as he says, and I quote, incarnation is an individual form of totalization, by this we do not mean that it is the symbol or expression of the whole which is being totalized, but that it realizes itself in in a very real and practical sense as totality producing itself here and now. So according to Banerjee, this idea, the whole here and now is probably the simplest way of expressing Sartre's notion of what history is and what, what it means for it to happen. In other words, events and individuals are marked simultaneously by an irreducible singularity and universality. The singularity is not only manifested in the particular time and place of the fight, but crucially in how it is fought down to the last detail. As Banerjee notes, when Sartre says, everything is given the least punch, he literally means this, and I quote Banerjee, everything from the history of of the one who delivers it to the material and collective circumstances of that history from the enveloping totalization that is the world of boxing, the economic enterprise controlled by boxing promoters to the way a boxer is trained and takes on that training as a life project. To be the best, for example, and so on all of these ensembles these partial totalities these totalizations are condensed in this fight here, which in turn retotalizes boxing and all other fights. Now to my mind, this is a very suggestive approach to restoring the status of sporting action within histories of sport. Sporting action then is not simply ephemeral, sport is not, only, sport is not only always about something other than itself. Sporting action and its thick description matters. The idea that everything is given in the least punch forces us to rethink the relationship between sporting action within the boundary and the context that lies outside the boundary. The notion of incarnation that Sartre uses suggests that entire histories, systems, totalities are condensed in real historical time in what occurs within the sporting field. We need not set up action and context as binaries. On the contrary, action itself carries with it dense layers of historical context. And as historians, it is our task to find ways of engaging with sporting action in a way that dissolves the boundary between what happens inside and outside the sports field. Such discussion also shows us a way in which we can think of events and individuals in sports history dialectically. It allows us to think of how events and individuals carry and convey the density of history and how it unfolds in a manner that resists abstractions. It also reveals that the truly intelligible history is one that captures its dialectical movement. Okay, so let me now turn to my third and final theme. We tend to think of boundaries in terms of space, but boundaries are also about time and temporality. So in the last part of my talk, I want to focus on the temporal dimension of boundaries in the historical reconstruction specifically of sporting events. And I call this section of the talk, Time, Temporality, and the Sporting Event. I noted uh, noted earlier in my talk that academic writing on sport tends to have a curious reluctance to dwell on sporting action. One could say the same about its approach to sporting events. Perhaps on account of the analytical mode that dominated the writing of history within the paradigms of professional history that I sketched out earlier, social history, cultural history, uh, global history, The event as a category in academic sports history has tended to occupy a relatively marginal status. Uh, And again, I'm not talking here of popular histories of sport, which are all about events, but uh, I'm talking about the the way academic history of sport has tended to construe the event. The historiography of sport tends to be driven by by its concerns with structures and processes. Uh, As a consequence, it has tended to have what one might term a developmentalist perspective that highlights recursive patterns in the construction of structures. The most ubiquitous form it takes is that of institutional histories of clubs and associations. Sporting events for the most part have largely been the domain of popular histories of sport. Of course, again, um, there are uh, worthy exceptions, but I'm talking of a general trend. But I'd like to argue that it is time to bring the event back in within sports history and in a manner that is different to the one adopted by popular sports history. Not least because I believe that the consideration of of the temporalities of sporting events may have something worthwhile to offer to more general considerations of the event as a category within historical analysis. Such a reconsideration of the event I'd like to suggest involves crucial questions about the boundaries of time and the rhythms of temporality that are relevant to history writing more generally. In turn, these questions involve narrative choices in the demarcation and slicing up of time. Temporal boundaries are not simply given. Historians have to make active choices in their narrative strategies in order to render their accounts both true and intelligible. Now, I cannot lay lay any claim to uh, any originality in making these points. In the late 1960s, the Yale historian, J.H. Hexter wrote a richly suggested essay on the rhetoric of history. In this uh, essay, Hexter sought to outline what was distinctive about the modes of explanation specific to history. In order to show how historians use narrative to provide answers to questions that are distinctively historical, Hexter used an example from sport. At the heart of his essay was an extended discussion in response to the question, "How did the New York Giants happen to play in the World Series of 1951?" Many years later, the essay was the subject of an equally interesting set of reflections by um, Marshall Salins in his book *Apologies to Tucddis*. To those of you who are familiar with this, uh, with the essay, uh, to those of you who are unfamiliar with the essays by Hexter and Sarlins, some background detail might be helpful at this point. The event that Hexter chose to focus on was one of the most famous events in the history of American baseball. In 1951, the New York Giants uh, defeated the Brooklyn Dodgers for the National League Championship, which is how they got to play in the World Series that year. This has long been regarded as one of the great American sporting events of the uh, 20th century. To quote Salins, the Giants won at 3.58 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on 3rd October, 1951 when Bobby Thompson hit the famous home run that defeated the Dodgers in the last half of the last innings of the final game of a three-game playoff for the title. And as Silence notes, Bobby Thompson's home run was the shot heard across heard round the world. Every red-blooded American baseball fan of a certain age remembers where he or she was when listening to the broadcast of Thompson's Great feat, Just as they remember the news of Pearl Harbor, the death of Franklin Roosevelt, the assassination of President Kennedy. The key point here is not so much the historical significance of the event. Rather, Hexter's point is that to narrate the story of this event calls for modes of storytelling that are dictated by its specificity and its singularity. In this instance, a dramatic climax to a rivalry that had extended over weeks, and that came down in the end to a thrilling act of sporting heroism at a critical moment. Interestingly, given the nature of the event he described, Salin's points, points out that Hexter's question ought to have been a different one. Let us follow Salin's here, and I quote, the critical question was not the one Hexter posed, which is to say, how did the New York Giants happen to play in the World Series of 1951? The critical question was, how did the Giants overtake the Dodgers to win the pennant and thus play in the World Series? For what happened again was a specific kind of historical change. The overthrow at the last possible moment and thus in a dramatic fashion of a long-standing relationship between the two teams, or if you will, the competing collective subjects. Here was a reversal of the order of things, a structural change that, qualified, that qualifies Bobby Thompson's home run as a historic event, even as it qualified him as a hero, a history maker. And it is from this revolutionary denouement working backward that we discover and rhetorically motivate Uh, that we discover and rhetorically motivate the tempos, turning points, and agents of our history. Historical storytelling is the retelling from the beginning of an outcome already known. That knowledge guiding the selection from the archive of the successive events of the narrative. To emphasize how the nature of an event's outcome determines the narrative strategies and temporal boundaries that historians construct, Extra contrasts the New York Giants' triumph in 1951 with another event, you, the New York Yankees' stately progression uh, to their American League triumph in 1939. As Sarlins notes, there was no pennant in the American League in 1939, no turning point, no contest. Minor day-to-day fluctuations apart, right from the beginning, the Yankees progressively distanced themselves from the competition to end the season with an extraordinary 17-game advantage over who else? Boston Red Sox. For the same reason, there was no, there were no decisive pennant winning acts or heroes. And Salin summarizes Hexter's argument as follows. The history of the 1939 Yankees pennant was developmental, whether that of the 51 Giants was even The first was evolutionary, the second a kind of revolutionary world fast. Hexter chose to compare the two seasons because, in contrast to the narrative mode appropriate to the Giants victory, which he called storytelling, the Yankees championship is better understood by what he calls analysis, an account simply of their attributes as a team, without the necessity of referring to individual exploits or particular games. Even more, Hexter's baseball comparison affords a principal reason grounded in the nature of history at issue, or the temporalities or periodizations by which we relate it. It was precisely these questions of historical temporality that I had to confront in my own book, Cricket Country. As I mentioned at the outset, the book tells the story of the first All India cricket team's historic tour of Great Britain and Ireland in the summer of 1911. This was a completely forgotten venture, uh, and very little was known about it. The most challenging aspect of writing this book lay in identifying the temporal boundaries and rhythms of this event. When I first began the research, I had assumed that the initiative for this tour must have been taken in the year or two immediately preceding it. But as I began to dig deeper, I discovered that the first time that the idea of a common collective Indian team had been proposed was at the end of the 19th century, a dozen years before the tour actually happened. Along the way, there were a number of failed attempts, many twists and turns in the story. Suddenly, the temporal boundaries of the event expanded. And as I went deeper, they continued to expand even further. The attempt to forge an Indian cricket team was largely the work of Parsi cricketing entrepreneurs in Bombay. That was a story that went even further back in time to the 1870s and 1880s. Indeed, the first cricket teams to arrive in Britain from India were the Parsi teams that came over in the 1880s. Thus, it came about that the temporal boundaries of my book were stretched back to the 1870s. This were a book that was supposed to have concentrated on 1911. And in the end, that is where I had to begin my narrative. Choices about temporal boundaries also dominated the structure of the book in other ways. If, as Sarlins notes, historical narrative is the recounting from the beginning of an outcome already known, then in this instance, it posed peculiar problems of narrative organization. Should the events that preceded the 1911 cricket tour of Britain be simply treated as a historical background, condensed to provide the relevant information necessary to a comprehension of the event? Or did they merit consideration and extended treatment in their own right? Interestingly enough, the 1911-12 was unlike either the 1939 Yankees, uh, the, the story of the Yankees in 1939, or the tale of the Giants in, 19, in, in, in 1951. This was, in other words, neither a story that was straightforwardly developmental, nor purely evenimental, to use the phrase that Solins uses. In other words, the choice of the temporal structure and boundaries could not be either pure analysis or pure narrative. The mode that I finally adopted was an analytical narrative that was structured as a a temporal triptych. Perhaps I was unconsciously influenced by Fernand Brodel's tripartite understanding of historical temporality, structure, conjuncture, and event. But where Brodel investigates these as layers resting on each other, my framing was a horizontal one. I began with structure, moved to conjuncture, and then zoomed into the event. Thus, the book starts with a portrait of the structure of early Indian cricket in the late 19th century, setting this in the context of the late Victorian empire of cricket. It then moves on to the historical conjuncture of the 1900s, in which the idea of India takes shape on the cricket pitch. In the final part of the book, I narrowed the focus to that one summer, the summer of 1911. Here the narration by necessity had to become increasingly dense and detailed so that the reader could get a feel of the rhythms of that summer and how it unfolded over the course of an extraordinary few months. And the last chapter, uh, the penultimate chapter ends with the last day of the uh, English county season of 1911, August uh, 31st, 1911. So the book starts in the 1870s and it finishes with that one afternoon um, at the the end of uh, August, 1911. So to sum up what I've been driving at in this part of my talk is that the idea of the boundary is not only spatial, it is also temporal. Thus conceived the slicing up of time and the demarcation of temporal boundaries is integral to the writing of sports history. In some accounts time unfolds in a developmental sequence in which specific time periods figure as the focus of analysis in other accounts with other narrative framings time has an altogether different texture and density. But however we slice up time, and whatever narrative strategy we deploy, it is imperative that our temporal framing display a fidelity to the historical reality that we are seeking to uh, to describe and explain. To conclude, I have focused in my talk today on a category and a concept that is foundational to the writing of sports history. The notion of the boundary is in- intrinsic to the writings of sport history of sports history. Indeed, I've argued that it is constitutive of the discipline. I've explored three aspects today, but there are other ways in which one might have passed the subject. To give just one example, one might write the entire history of a particular sport by using the notion and concept of the boundary. For instance, one could write a history of cricket on precisely this basis which is to say how the creation of the boundary encapsulated its transformation from a game played on the early modern rural commons to an enclosed spectator sport organized along capitalist lines, how boundaries structured relationships on the basis of class and gender. Uh, Think, for example, of the boundaries in Britain that separated amateurs and professionals, men and women, and in other parts of the world, divided communities along lines of race and religion. And how the metaphor of the boundary symbolized the sport's very self-image. The idea that what transpired outside the cricket field needed to be kept separate from what occurred inside it. The idea that sport could be marked out as a discrete domain, the codes of acceptable behavior uh, within the sport being defined by what happens within the boundary. I could go on in this vein, but perhaps one of you today in the audience might feel inspired to have a crack at precisely such a project. So I'm going to end on that note. Uh, And finally, I'd like to thank uh, the British Society of Sports History and its book prize judging panel for the great honor they've accorded me in uh, awarding cricket country, the um, Lord Abadair Literary Prize. Um, I think there can be no greater uh, pleasure for a writer than the recognition of one's peers. So I'm truly delighted. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. Um, Unfortunately, the the boundaries imposed on us by by the current pandemic mean that you won't hear the applause that I'm sure that everybody um, who's listened to your uh, talk um, would join with me in uh, giving you because uh, that was an amazing um, analysis of our discipline and the state of our discipline now in the light of um, an incredible array of thinkers and writers. So it's a real privilege to have, um, have listened to you speak today. We do have a few questions. So I'm gonna uh, try and sort of multitask by looking at the questions and then listening to your answers. So the first question um, is from our esteemed chair. Uh, um, Raph Nicholson. Uh, Nicholson asks, Prashant, you've referred in your lecture to popular and academic sports history. Is this a false dichotomy? I ask because it feels like Cricket Country has crossed over into being a popular book um, without you necessarily intending this when you wrote it.
2: Um, well, I suppose, you know, there is something arbitrary in drawing up these sorts of binary categories, but I suppose what I meant was that, we know, if you walk into a bookshop, you know, there's a section in which there will be popular biographies of uh, players or events often ghostwritten uh, or, you know, they The sort of histories popular histories um, of of particular sporting events and so on which we know are written for a general audience they're not you know they don't make any claims to the protocols of academic research and so on Um, and and then academic sports writing sometimes does cross the boundaries it's very kind of you to say that my book did that Uh, uh, but by and large we write I think as academic historians we tend to write uh, for our peers and, and, and the discursive space that we inhabit within academia, so it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rough and ready distinction, um, I'm sure there are things that cross the boundaries and so on, so I won't kind of, you know, go to war on that. Okay. Um, and from Suvik Naha, is the lack
1: of attention given to events as theoretical categories oh, yeah, yeah. symptomatic of a marginalisation of anthropological methods in history departments? Is it symptomatic of a suspicion towards evenement. It seems like most works on play were written by anthropologists such as Joseph Alter, Nico Besnier, and others. Uh, do you want to take that on, Raf? Um,
2: Sorry, Prashant. Yeah, uh, I mean, Raf is very,
1: uh, <laughs> Raf <Raph> looks stunned. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I think these are the sorts of things that uh, require some kind of collective uh, discussion, really. I mean, why is that the case? I think Zoe's question is a valid one. I think it is true that anthropologists, because they come to do close-up uh, analysis of the way specific and then try and uncover its dynamics, uh, may have written more about events. But I mean, there's no reason why historians should have avoided looking at events. And I, I think there are historians who do look at events. I think, uh, standing back and looking at it in terms of the uh, disciplinary um, aspect, uh, you know how sports history has evolved as a professional discipline. It seems to me that the focus of sports history has largely been on structures. You know the the creation of institutions. Uh, it's been on things to do with class formation. It's about class conflict, um, and it's been about how sport has been embedded. Uh, within society, through particular kinds of historical processes, so this, the focus has been, uh, if one might use the fa- phrase, uh, the emphasis has been on the recursives, the things that are patterned, you know, the things happen again and again, and so the event has not perhaps recognized, you know, got the same amount of uh, attention. But also, it could be for precisely the point that I was point uh, making uh, in in the first part of my talk, which is that actually the event itself, within general history too, tended to be you know, for a long time, people didn't look at event history. I mean, Brodel very famously said, you know, events were just the uh, form on the sort of surface of seas and so on. I mean, you know, there was a kind of downplaying of the event, not only in sports history, but more generally in social history, I think. Uh, but I do think it's important to bring it back because, uh, and to bring it back, not in the old way, but to bring it back in a new way to think about, and so this is precisely the problem that I had to encounter in cricket country. It was an event, but I didn't want, I couldn't write about an event in any conventional way. I had to rethink the history of the event. And then and then you rethink the relationship between the specific and the general, the event and the structure. Uh, but yes, but I do think historians, sports historians need to stop thinking. And, and I think this is where sports history can actually make a huge contribution to more general theoretical debates within history, you know, about how we think about the event as a category of analysis.
1: Okay. Um, I have a question from Matt McDowell, um, Matt says thanks for the excellent talk Prashant and that's something that a few few people have said in chat as well. I like what you're saying about including sporting action in our academic work, but I'm wondering if this says something broader about how in academic history we are hemmed in already in a marginal position in uh, mainstream history, when we discuss solely stuff beyond the boundary. We are fearful of including action for fear of appearing narrow and parochial to histories who aren't experts in sports. Is that a structural impediment that someone who critically discusses the prose of Hemingway and Sartre in an academic setting doesn't need to negotiate? And I'll have a follow-up question to that afterwards.
2: Yes, I think uh, that's a very good point. And there is, I mean, I think I sort of mentioned that he, there's a sort of a, a, an ambivalence that flows from our disciplinary location from this sense that if you talk, start writing about, you know, the, the, I think the idea is that sport is anyway regarded as a kind of subject that is popular. And then if you kind of look at sporting action, then you're somehow dumbing down or something like that. Some, some thinking along those lines seems to be embedded in, in the collective consciousness, I think. and but 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 i think the time has come to challenge that because i think you know if you look at the best ethnographic work it's often about arcane cultural practices that need to be explicated and described in detail for it for for the point of the exercise to actually be uh made clear and it seems to me that sports historians by constantly looking at everything other than the sport itself um you know, by 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 tending to focus constantly on the context, always on the context, always going, having to go beyond the boundary, that we actually ignore uh, the the value of what is in front of us. And the, the quote from Hemingway is precisely because there is something there that appeals to me about that quote, uh, which is, I think, the need to look, to not turn our gaze away uh, and, and to be able to describe and write about something in an unflinching way. And sporting action actually, requires us to do that and i think for far too long it's been the domain of journalists or you know um or, or people who kind of describe sport for a wider public but sporting historians themselves have tended to avert their gaze and i think we need to get back to it and we need to think about the intellectual rationales that we might uh, that we might fashion i think that the the turn to start there was simply to say that's one way in which one might think about it you know and the fact that everything is given in the least punch that an entire history can be told uh, by focusing on sporting action and the density of historical, um, the density of history that sporting action carries. So, so, I think there's a conversation to be had perhaps about the methods by which one might do it. Perhaps it should be the theme of a panel in a future uh, sports history conference. How do we talk about action? Why do we turn our gaze away from it? What are the um, ambivalences that hold us back from it? from writing about it. I mean, the primary sources that we deal with are constantly talking about the sporting action, but we always bracket those off and get to the context, you see. So, so I think it's a, it's a kind of way of my own frustration, I think, that we're always, I mean, talk about the context. And this is something I had to face in Cricket Country, you know, in writing it. The second part of the book had to be about the cricket tour and I kept I kept avoiding writing that chapter till the very end. And then I had to, there was no way I could not write about it because that was the whole point. These guys were here to play cricket. How long, you know, I got away with writing sort of nine chapters without dealing with the tour, but I had to bring it in. And, you know, some, those who looked at it purely as a cricket book said, well, you know, the tour only comes up on page 271 ever. Uh, but that is because I was kind of trying to figure out how one could write about it. And it, it kept confronting me, that problem, you know, of how do we describe sporting action? Uh, and, and also then made me think, you know, why do I shy away from this? What is it that holds me back? Is it what Matt said that, you know, I might just think all my colleagues think that, you know, this is not serious. What I don't know. But we need to reflect on it collectively. I think.
1: Um, I've got a sort of a follow up to that when we're talking about describing sporting action. And I was wondering how the sort of cultural Turn or the historical cultural turn to Im- the history of emotion might inform the way that we look at sporting action.
2: That's an excellent point. That's a very good point. Yes, I, I think that, in fact, so much of uh, sporting action is about the affective and this uh, and, and and about the emotional aspect of. It. And again, I think this is these are themes that are coming back. I mean, we're seeing in other disciplines, uh, subdisciplines, you know, the emphasis on um, memory, on affect, on emotion you know the, the, the need to look at the irrational uh, in you know in in, in uh, other domains has become increasingly apparent uh, i mean we see it in politics i think now any serious study of politics must look at the place of the irrational and, and how, how how are people moved to do things that would uh, you know directly seem to contradict the the uh, requirements of reason So I think there is something here for sports history, and so again I think it's about looking at what's happening elsewhere in other subfields and bringing that back into sports history and saying, you know, why? Because you know, in many uh, um, dimensions and aspects, I think sports history addresses some of the most fundamental questions of human societies. You know, Um, um, whether it's how we think of events, or you know, uh, uh, or in this instance, how we think of the place of emotions in human societies. So I think that you know we can use sport as a lens to illuminate not only questions of to do with sports history but more general questions about the human condition i think
1: okay so i just said in chat that i'm taking four more questions now which i've already had in the chat so i'm sorry if you've asked a question after that but we do have to set some boundary to our uh, talk today um so a next question from Rajiv: when writing on a sport that strongly overlaps with other themes such as sports cricket and the colonial era Was there a conscious attempt to follow or carry forward the tradition of earlier writings in this genre, or on the contrary, to distance it from any tradition that there might be and approach it afresh? So I guess that's about your own approach,
2: Prashant. Well, we always stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say, and and I've been influenced by everything that I've read, um, you know, uh, and there have been great works of sports history that have influenced me. I think... um, for me, the challenge with this particular book was that I didn't want, I could not uh, write a conventional history of a sporting tour because I'd already written journal articles on it, there was nothing more to say. So what I had to do was essentially stop thinking about this as an as a sporting event, but to think of it as a historical event and to think of the questions that one would ask of something if one were to approach it as an event in a more general sense. and. And that's where I realized that actually, in a way, there were all kinds of interesting methodological challenges that this book raised, but which, if I tackled, um, you know, that there might be something that was perhaps uh, different from what had been written before. So, you know, in terms of the temporal organization of the book, in terms of how I wanted to capture, I wanted to create with this book. A real sense of being transported back in time to that particular time and place. So you know the kind of narrative mode that that called for, um, and I also wanted to write this not as increasingly has become the norm, which is to tick boxes. You know, um, we all know you know that so that of there are some generic categories that any work of this kind would be expected to take race, class, gender, empire, et cetera. I wanted to write something that would actually uh, be interesting as a, as a as a kind of narrative and and so the choice of the narrative mode was actually um, the key decision I made I mean I couldn't tell the story in the analytical board I couldn't tell it purely as a story so this sort of analytical narrative finding my way to that 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 was the real uh, both the challenge but also the most exciting part of it and once I found that I think then things began to kind of take shape and uh yeah, so uh, so yes, I mean, I, you 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 build on what others have done, but you also want to do something that nobody's done before, I suppose.
1: Okay, so um, from Katie Holmes, to tell the stories of events in an engaging way, does the sto- sports historian need to be a player of the sport herself?
0: Uh,
2: not necessarily, but it helps. I think, I mean, I played uh, sort of uh, cricket when I was in school and college at like a reasonable uh, degree, uh, but I was not particularly great at it or anything, but, uh, but I was familiar with with, with, the, with the game and I played it to a certain degree, as I said. Um, and that obviously helps because the technical aspects you, you have a certain kind of familiarity with it, but you could also master the, that by watching a lot of that sport. Uh, so it's not an insuperable um, obstacle. Uh, it helps. And, and I think where it helps is in understanding the point of that activity. So for example, I have a section um, in uh, in one of the uh, later chapters in the book where I talk about the history of the Googly. Now the history of the Googly is actually very interesting because it it's not simply you know, at one level, it's a technical innovation, but it also gets caught up with the imperial uh, the politics of cricket and so on, you know, the fact that it gets diffused in a particular way and so on. And that when the Indians first came, today we regard Indian cricketers as being great uh, players of spin bowling and so on. But when they first came to Britain uh, at that summer, um, they couldn't fathom how to play the googly, they'd never seen it before. So, you know, um, uh, so I uh, to know to, to write that history uh, required one to know something about. You know one needs to know what the googly is and its place in cricket history and so on or the importance of swing bowling at the turn of the century you know uh, so so things like that i do think you know having a technical understanding of the game helps but i don't think it's something that should be an in, insurmountable barrier to writing a really good sports history book
1: okay and our penultimate question our description of events in english cricket at least even reliable sorry this is from duncan um, Cardus and many others clearly used aesthetics to privilege upper class amateur play and demean so called working class professional play,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and sadly the game's propagandists' overwhelming success in presenting this view has hoodwinked some academic historians. Mm-hmm. So are we are we victims of merely sort of replicating class structures in the past?
2: Uh, possibly, but I think uh, you know lots of sports historians have subjected. I mean, Cardis, for example, uh, you know, a lot of his descriptions have now been called out because, you know, he's, uh, the, the claim is that he's made up some of that stuff and so on. So I don't think, uh, you know, anybody who brings any critical skills to bear on this topic, is presumably asking that question of the sources. And it's something that I suppose we do with most of the sources we read, that, we, you know, we have to wear our critical hat and think about, you know, uh, how how seriously to take that source to kind of cross-check it with other things and so on. So I suppose, as far as the pro, you know, as far as as long as you follow the protocols of a good historical research, um, one should be able to kind of separate the wheat uh, from the chaff, as you say.
1: Okay, and our final question, which on the surface is the most simple question, but in fact might be the most complicated answer. I don't know. Um, from Steve Bolton, how is a cricketer like Ranji now viewed?
2: Oh, how is a cricketer like Ranji now viewed? Um, I think. Um, the historical verdict uh, has been changing i mean i think ranji had two lives and two careers i mean there's ranji in britain and ranji in india uh, i think ranji's career in britain has largely been seen through this very orientalist lens you know this uh, sh- shining light from the east and this mysterious cricketer and so on and, uh, and and those dominant stereotypes of him as a player and so on still you know this idea of the strange and sublime genius and so on that still weighs very heavily, I think, uh, academically, and, and in India, of course, there are there are those who are, you know, coming at him from a nationalist standpoint, have have criticised him uh, sharply for not being an Indian nationalist, for being an empire loyalist, and so on. But I think uh, the best work on Ranji, to my mind, is by the historian Satadru Sen. Um, it's called Migrant Races. Uh, that's the main title, and it's a biography of Ranji, but not a conventional biography, and and uh, what's, and what's it's an academic book in that it came out at Manchester University Press and it's researched, a very rigorously researched book, but it's a fascinating book because it shows how Ranji was a very complicated figure who cannot be easily captured by the binaries of empire loyalism or nationalism. He's a, a, a complicated man uh, coming out of circumstances that in which he felt you know, that he had been somehow uh, uh, deprived of what was his due. Uh, you know, he was disinherited at a young age and so on. Came to Britain, uh, developed his cricketing skills, found cricket, uh, you, you know, a sport in which he made a name for himself and became an imperial superstar and so on. And then used the imperial cricketing celebrity to to wage a successful struggle for his uh, throne in uh, back in India. And 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 what Satyatru Sen shows is how at different times and in different uh, contexts, Ranchi had to navigate uh, different audiences, the complexities of both British uh, politics and uh, Indian society. And, and that you know there are lots of uh, ambivalences, lots of complexities in the way he negotiated this world. And that he, at, at some levels, he was successful. But at other levels, he was also stymied by the larger structures in which he found himself. That, that you know, that an easy binary reading of him, uh, simply as a cricketing genius, you know, uh, who was an Empire loyalist, or this idea that he was a uh, charlatan who's you know who opposed Indian nationalism. Neither of these actually do justice to the complexities of who he was. Okay? So I think Satadru Sen's book would be the book I would um, would go to.
1: Well, thanks very much, Prashant. And uh, there are more questions, as I said, but um, unfortunately the clock is against us now.
2: Well, thank you so much for, uh, you know, for inviting me to give this lecture. It's been a great pleasure. I hope you got something out of it too.
1: Great. Thanks. Well, thanks very much. And uh, uh, yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Uh,
2: thanks very much, Jeff. Thank you.